Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in presidents like states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now, three-time Super Bowl champ. You see him now on NBC Sports Boston. It is Ted Johnson. Ted, how are you, man? Good, Brian. How you doing, pal? I'm doing well. I'll say this. I'm doing a lot better than the Patriots are right now. Getting ready for Christmas and whatnot. The Patriots, I mean, I was thinking about this, Ted, after the game. I was just sort of in shock after you see the Keelan Cole, the questionable call there. And then after that, of course, the Jacoby Myers play. But I'm just a fan watching the game and I'm in awe. I got to imagine you as somebody that played for not only Bill Belichick, but Bill Parcells. Like, what was your reaction to what transpired at the end of that game? Well, it was it was shocking disbelief, just uh, to be honest with you. I just never saw that that those series of, uh, you know, actions to I, I never saw that coming, I guess. I just I, I and part of it, Brian, is is I, I have to I had to kind of maybe after it's maybe easy now to second guess it, but second guess just the play call, the draw play on the forty five yard line. Um, it, it just felt like wow, you know, with five seconds left, what's the point? Unless you you think you can get it to the house, and you can say, well, maybe you know, there's a chance you get it to the house. Well, there's also a chance that you can fumble it and have them return it for a, a you know a, a touchdown to to end the game. So. Um, I was a little bit, you know, I wasn't real thrilled about the play call. I'll just get that out there. But what happened after that was was shocking. However, not all that surprising, Brian. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I think in that situation, unless you practice that situation a lot, um, which I can't, it's just not a situation I remember practicing much, uh, to be honest with you. Hey, the game's tied. There's five seconds left. <laughs> We're going to run a draw play uh, to hopefully get a touchdown. Like That just wasn't a situation that's repped. What do you do in that situation if you don't think you can make a touchdown? You get the hell out of bounds or you you hang on to the ball. You don't try and lateral the ball uh, for the potential of turning the ball over. And I just the, – the, my point is – we're going to be criticized, Ramondre Stevenson, for getting the ball rolling by being the first guy to pitch the ball. And then, of course, ultimately, Jacoby Myers, what he did. 
However, I would say this. I just don't think they should have been put in that situation to begin with. And I will say I am a little bit sympathetic to Jacoby Myers. My feeling is that is not a situation he probably practiced a whole lot. And my guess is, because I haven't heard anybody say this, that the players were alerted before the play. That is a situation, Brian, in which coaches can get in the player's ear and from the sideline, hey, alert, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna run the draw, but do not turn the ball over. That is that is uh that is very important. I don't think that that was uh, relayed to those guys, and you saw what you saw, which is um is is still you know being talked about today, two days after the game. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because I feel like maybe Ramondre Stevenson got further than he thought he was going to get. And then he thought, like, OK, maybe we have a chance here. So he pitches at Jacoby to Jacoby Myers. But to your point, Ted, in terms of the coaching this up, we've seen this not this exact play. Obviously, I, I've never seen this, quite frankly, in my life, although the Chandler Jones thing stiff arming Max kind of like a microcosm of the season. That's the Patriots season this year. But no we've seen the. We've seen these mental mistakes, right? I mean, think about it a couple weeks ago against Minnesota. Remember, Hunter Henry just doesn't run out of bounds when he's right there. I don't know what he was thinking there. We saw Mac run for a yard when he could have just thrown the ball away. So it does seem like this time and situational stuff that when you were playing here, they were really good at it. When Brady was here in the latter dynasty, if you will, they were always good. And it just seems like they sort of lost that. You know, it's funny. It is weird. You know, look, I, I thought if you were to ask me, what was Mac Jones' biggest strength in his rookie season? From the very beginning until the very end, I would have told you is his, his two-minute operation. It was If you remember, Brian, in, in the preseason games last year, Josh McDaniels, when he was still here, he had Mac Jones doing a lot of hurry up. Um, and, and anytime he had a chance to get have Mac out there right before the half or just uh, at the end of a, a preseason game, he had Mac in hurry up or in two minutes, and he was brilliant. He was. He was efficient. He was smart. The ball, you know, they knew where to go with the football. Boom, boom, boom. Very efficient. This year, it's a train wreck, that situation. Hurry up, two minute. They are, they are, they, they really um, are, are just kind of uh, are clueless. And it's, it's, it is shocking because that is, it, it, it I hate to say it, but that, that points to coaching. Um, it really does. I know a lot of, People are kind of pushing back on that that notion this week. It's like, hey, the players were probably more complicit in this game than the coaching was. But um, in those situations, and they have been – situational football is Bill Belichick's forte, right? It is what he – if he was – you want to just say, who's the original OG situational <laughs> football coach? It's Bill Belichick. He was th looking at football through the situations before anybody else was. And this year, they're terrible. Red zone, two minute, third down. Uh, there, every every meaningful uh, situation uh, that uh, that the bill really, uh, it, you know, you know, is uh, really kind of covets. They're terrible at, and so that's what is so amazing. And that just points again to coaching, I think, more than it does the players. Because I have to make this point time and time again: this roster, Brian, is better this year than the last year's roster. This roster has better players on paper than it does uh, than it did last year, and particularly on offense, and you see what uh, what the outcome is. That just always, that of course, points you more towards the coaches uh, uh, being the issue uh, as well. Well, it's a great point, too, because if you look at it, Mac had a pretty good rookie season, and if you look at his sophomore campaign, the offense in general, so the numbers are startling. You look at third down, they've gone from 7th to 29th. Red zone, they've gone from 7th to dead last in the NFL. Even the Denver Broncos, who are like on pace to be the worst offense ever. The Patriots are worse than them. 
Their success rate has gone from fourth to 25th in the NFL. So across the board, they've been horrible. And I just keep coming back to this, Ted. I don't know if you remember this, but last year, Bill compared Josh McDaniels to Nick Saban. He actually legitimately did that. And then his answer to replacing Josh McDaniels is a guy that's never done it before in Matt Patricia. And you just look across the league. Look at all the cool stuff like Mike McDaniels doing for Tua. We've seen what Brian Dayball and the Giants are like actually somewhat competent this year because they have a new coach and it's not Joe Judge anymore who has, happens to be on the Patriots staff right now. But we've seen it across these leagues. Shanahan, all the stuff that they do with Jimmy somewhat limited. Now they got Mr. Irrelevant and they're still successful because of the personnel and the yep. scheme. So I just keep coming back to we all thought this was a dumb idea before the season. And Bill goes into the season. They do it with Matt Patricia and the results have been horrible across the board. I just don't know how he can possibly defend the decision to go with this guy based on the results we're seeing. It's, it's, it feels like it's almost feels like Brian, like he, Bill can't believe, excuse me, what's going, what's happening in front of him. I, I feel like his, some of his answers to some of these questions after games are head scratchers. I, you know, it, it feels panicky. It feels like he has kind of lost the, 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 the control of the steering wheel uh, to, to some degree. And it's, and he doesn't really have an answer. There's just so many problems, Brian, that he can't, he can't fix it. You're right. You look at the, the growth that Tua's had. You look at the growth growth that, uh, uh, you know, uh, our, our guy in there in Philly. Why am I uh, space? Jalen Hurts. Yeah, Jalen Hurts. Yeah, right, right. Jalen Hurts. I mean, you know, if you Kirk Cousins in Minnesota, right? You, you mentioned the 49ers. These, these, all of these, these teams and these quarterbacks are kind of having great years because not only – did they did the, the Miami Dolphins go out and get loaded up on 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 offense? And you know we know what uh, you know you, you know you know what the the Vikings have. We know what Shanahan that goes out and gets McCaffrey right. Um, so you have all these quarterbacks that have unbelievable coaching and uh, and, and like knowledge of the system, like you know on the like it's you know on the back of their hand. And then you know and that's going to help these guys be better uh, uh, you know quarterbacks. The thing with this with Bill, Bill looks at it and he thinks he he doesn't have to have the weapons. He's never coveted really high high end wide receivers. The, the, the ones that you think of, oh, Tebby he got Randy Moss. He got Randy Moss at a bargain, and at, at, at the, the timing was perfect. Um, that's the only reason he got Randy Moss. Otherwise, he's not a guy that goes big game hunting to get free agents to get that that guy or likes to bring him uh, high in the draft. And that is maddening, um, and it's showing. I think, and it all goes back to at the end of the day. Bill's Bill's hubris, you know, his his uh, he feels like, you know, he he can win with average players. And he's always kind of thought that when he's, you know, when he's thinking of building a roster. But clearly um, that's it's just not working anymore. You don't have the players. Bill's had excellent players to go along with his schemes. He doesn't have the players and he really is really suffering with his coaches. The coaches, I think, are are are, are really uh, hampering the growth of, of the players they have on his team. Well, and it's an interesting point on the weapons, right? Because you said it. I mean, it's not like Bill goes big game hunting, but he did get Randy Moss and Tom Brady had one of the best seasons in NFL history, broke the record. Randy Moss broke the record for touchdown receptions. And then he gets Rob Gronkowski, which was an incredible draft pick. And they get away with not paying him top tier weapon money because he's not technically a receiver. So even though he's doing more than the receivers in the blocking game, he's actually getting paid less. So when they had those two guys, when they had Gronk and previous Randy Moss, we saw what it did for Tom. And if you go back to 19, 
Remember, the market for Brady, it wasn't really there. It was like a couple of teams, right? It was the Raiders. It was the Chargers. They thought maybe San Francisco went back and watched the film and decided that Jimmy was a better option for them. So that's why Tom ends up in Tampa. He wanted to go to San Francisco, right? Even Tennessee decided Tannehill was a better option. So Bill, by that offensive line, fell apart. They had injuries. We know about the David Andrews situation. They had Marshall Newhouse playing left tackle. That guy was one of the worst left tackles you'll ever see. And Gronk had retired. And Edelman was banged up by the end of the season. So with the greatest quarterback of all time, he didn't have a good offensive line. He didn't have weapons. And we saw what the results were for Tom to the point where Bill didn't think he could play anymore. And he was willing to move on from the player, even if there's personal stuff and all that. So if that's the case with Tom, and now you have a guy entering year two, why aren't there more resources put into that weapon group? Like, I can't get over the fact that why weren't they in on A.J. Brown? I mean, this is one of the best receivers in the NFL. You could have had a mulligan for missing on him in the draft. Yeah, it, 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 it's, that's the biggest question. We'll never know. It is It is everybody, Brian, you, your frustrations are echo this, the frustrations of a lot of people in this region when it comes to weapons and wide, wide receivers. And you know, it, it, it's, it is mind-boggling to think. You know, we're talking about the, the lack of weapons the Patriots have. And here's the issue. I mean, here's the thing. They have the number one, uh, as, as far as money given to the, to the tight end position, more money's tied up in the tight end <laughs> position with the Patriots more than any other team. And I think they're the third highest uh, wide receiver uh, group in the NFL, too, as far as uh, as far as far their uh, their salary as well. So they've paid a lot of money for these guys. That clearly, they're not getting what, uh, the, what they paid for. But his – I would – it is the one position – Brian, it is the one position I would love to know. Bill's got a file somewhere. It's in a book. It's going to be probably a chapter in one of his books down the road is my philosophy on wide receivers. I would love to know exactly what Bill covets in a wide receiver. What is he looking for? What does he think he needs? And and, and why doesn't he value elite wide receivers? Because he's really never showed any interest in it. And it's mind-boggling. And it has us all baffled. Uh, uh, you know, about it uh, big time, Brian. All right. So then you look at Mac Jones. So the other day, obviously, he was really bad in that game, 13 of 31 and a couple of like the John U. Smith was wide open in the end zone. He misses him there. He missed Jacoby Myers over the middle of the field. He played really poorly. And if you look at Mac's numbers on the season, I actually tweeted this yesterday. They're actually comparable to Cam Newton's in 2020. Like Cam's actually have better numbers in some categories than Mac did. So the reason I bring that up is just I'm sympathetic to what Mac's going through, going from Josh McDaniels to Matt Patricia. But how much of this is on Mac or how much of this is almost like a wasted season for Mac where we have to wait until next year to actually get an accurate assessment of him because he wasn't given A, the proper weapons or B, the proper coaching. Like he didn't have either one of those elements. At least last year he had the coach. I think it's I, I put most of the onus on the coaching and it's starting to start. People are gotten, starting to get uh, irritated by that notion. It just feels like because it's. You know, it's it's really you know for a lot of us you know so-called experts and pundits in the, in the area, we we really been pointing to the coaching as being an issue from the very beginning, and so it feels like it's just well, there's a point in which the, you know the player has to uh, take responsibility. I get that, but it it's been broken. The confidence has been shattered from from how they handled I think the his injury and and, and Bailey Zappi uh, playing. I think uh, his his confidence was shaken in the in the preseason. You could tell that these guys were not buying in. To the Joe Judge, Matt Patricia, you know, double, you know, two-headed monster on on offense from the very beginning, and so it, it was. It's very difficult to evaluate this the young this young quarterback off, on this year's performance based off of the new system, the coaching. Here's the thing: we don't know if the wide receivers are, are 
if you watch the film, there, we can sit there and, and talk about uh, Mac Jones's accuracy, Brian. And I, I mean, it was a terrible night. Some would say that watch the tape a little bit more closely than I do, and I watch it pretty close. That the receivers aren't running the routes right. That they're cutting their, uh, they're not cutting their their routes off when they're supposed to. They're just not as sharp. That you match throwing it where he needs to, but they're just not where they where the receivers need to be. So the entire operation, Brian, is a freaking disaster. Um, and it, you know it's. And I think at the end of the day, even though it's playing better, the biggest problem all season long, really, from the beginning of training camp, was the offensive line and protection. If you can't block for Mac Jones, I'm sorry, he's not a guy that can elevate the offense. He's not a guy that can create when there's nothing there to to uh, you know to you know where there, nowhere to go with the football. He's not a guy that can create. He has to live right behind the, the center, five yards behind the center. And if you can't block for him, you're not going to get a really good evaluation. And he has been running for his life for most of the season. And the weapons, it just doesn't seem like the attention is to detail with the receivers. And so it's all a mess, Brian, all of it. And so Mac Jones, for me, I will say this, he gets a pass for this year. I, I cannot really have any real, uh, you know, hard and fast kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, opinions uh, about, uh, about him after uh, what he's had to really deal with with the coaching staff. Yeah. Is there any way that Patricia is still the play caller next year? I don't even know. Like, is Kraft going to have to step in? Do you think Bill would actually have Patricia be the play caller again? Because I can't imagine that he's going to look back at the results and say, hey, this is going to work next year. Just give it another year. Based on, too, like just the vibe of the team, like guys are speaking out about the offense all the time. We've never seen that. We didn't see that when McDaniels was the offensive coordinator. We didn't see it with Charlie Weiss. We saw Bill O'Brien and Tom get into it, but it wasn't like Tom had an actual issue with Bill O'Brien, we've never seen stuff like this, Ted. Right? They're 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 speaking out unabashedly. They're 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 like, I mean, they're 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 being passive aggressive and aggressive. They're they're, it's, they're just they're telling you, and they've been telling us in so many words, either saying it directly or indirectly. We're all season long, and you know we have. I mean, we're not stupid people that follow the team. We know what these guys are really trying to say, and they have not been satisfied. The entire offense has not been satisfied with the coaching they've been getting. The preparation has been awful, um, and they're saying it in so many words. There is no way, no way that they could roll it back next year with the same situation. I, Mr. Kraft, he he gets involved more than people realize. He's had his hand in personnel decisions, who stays, who goes. If, if, if Mr. Kraft has a strong opinion of a certain player or a certain idea, uh, he is going to – Push Bill to 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 get to what he wants, and so my my feeling is, Bill's not going anywhere. He's too old. He's got he's too entrenched. His kids are here. There's no way I could see Bill Belichick ever wanting to go somewhere else. He will change offensive coordinators. To, it, it will be nothing worse. Robert Kraft hates nothing worse. I'm trying to say than negative noise and attention to his his program, and it will be relentless until it is changed. It will be relentless, that criticism uh, that will rain down on the Patriots all offseason. And Kraft just does not have a stomach for that. He will make sure that has changed. And Bill is not going to fight him, Brian. It's, he's too late in his career to want to pick up and, and go do this somewhere else. Yeah, and either way, like if Bill decided to move on from Mac, it would look like he missed on the 15th pick in the draft. And then secondarily, there would be a situation if he moves on from Patricia, he looks bad. So either way, Bill's going to look bad this offseason. I think that he'd rather look bad with the offensive play caller than he would the quarterback. And speaking of the play caller, like I'm not even mad at Patricia. Like this is sort of what we expected. I mean, the guy's in a role that he shouldn't he shouldn't have. 
Yeah, you say you say that, and I hear you. And 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 I got I got criticized for this when when we were there was a debate about hey, well, you know, if uh, like the, the Jeff Saturday uh, head coaching job, you know, hey, if they offered you the head coaching job, you would take it. You know, you, you'd be stupid not to take. It. I go, no, I wouldn't. Like I I know what I'm good at, what I'm not. Like you, a, a job that big, a job, you know, like you you can't. I mean, here's the thing. Matt Patricia, he's got to know what his limitations are. Now, he might not be able to stand up to 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 Bill and if Bill's really want him to do it. But there's a point there's a there should be a part of Matt Patricia that should know better. Like that is a if it goes bad, it, it's going to go really bad and it's going to be uh, look bad on your career. I just I just part of the onus is on on Matt Patricia. That's all I'm saying. It's mostly on Bill because Bill thinks he can cut corners and that. You, you know, there's. Uh, if, it doesn't matter if you're just been coaching defense the whole time. He thinks that you can coach on both sides, and you can't. Here's the f- funny thing, too, Brian, is I think there's a blind spot for Bill on offense. I really do, because if the offense, if everybody would say, you know, well, Bill get involved if the offense is really falling off the rails. He'll get involved. He'll make sure it gets back on the, on the rails. We're, they, they've been off the rails all season long. <laughs> and Bill, yeah. Bill can go into those meetings. Bill can, you know, Bill has the ability to, to, to change the call, and he doesn't. And so you just wonder that he, you know, he really leaned on Josh and Bill Bill Bryan and Charlie Weiss before him um, a lot more than I think we uh, even, you know, uh, realized. Yeah, I mean, last year you were saying that basically he gave the offense to Josh and Josh would be already doing things that Bill was about to ask him to do. So they were on the same page the whole time. One thing in terms of Patricia that I'm wondering about, because I've been sort of tracking this all year, is so Mac, if you look at his dropback attempts out of play action, it's 16.8% this year, which is 36 out of 38 qualifiers. Last year, that number was at 26.8%, which was 15th of 38th. So about middle of the road. So is this, hey, they don't trust the offensive line to hold up? Is this just a blind spot that Patricia has because he hasn't called plays before? Why haven't they incorporated that? Because even at the beginning of the year, Mac was talking about the fact that he wanted more RPOs and specifically what I just referenced, he wanted more play action and they're not using that at all. Yeah, well, here's the thing. You know, if, if they're they're implementing the Shanahan offense, uh, I think it's, it's even though they won't say it, it's pretty obvious to all of us observers and it, we've, we've you've just, we know enough at this point to kind of know that really that they 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 did a whole re overhaul of their offense right from the whatever Josh and Tom were doing for all those years now they're going to change it to the Mike Shanahan offense and 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 that's where they that's what they're going to do and they're going to have to go through a lot of growing pains to get there but that's that was what they were determined to do and and that's really an offense best run under center and so really I mean that's you know it's the old Elway Elway under center and that's where the play action uh, comes in. But it's under center, one back, stretch runs, cutbacks, boots off of it, half boots, waggles off of it. That's kind of what the Shanahan offense is. Um, but Mac's not good at that. He's better in the shotgun, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you want to change the offense, um, but you're going to have Mac, who's really uh, more of a shotgun type guy. Um, and and for whatever reason, they didn't want to do the, a lot of the RPOs, even though the play action. It's it's a it's it's really you're a much more effective running team out of when you're not in the shotgun, but it, if it but Mac is best in, in shotgun, and so there's like this kind of I think struggle on here. We want to put this new system in, but Mac's better at shotgun, which doesn't fit the new system as good. By. So it's really it's really all a mess. But the, the the play action is was an issue from the very beginning, Brian, and it was what he was really good at last year, and really from the beginning of the season, we were all shocked at how few play action 
um, you know, plays there were. And play action is what you do. And the Patriots had a damn good running game for most of the season. It's to help protect of an offensive line that's sketchy blocking because the play action really holds defensive linemen for that split second and gives offensive linemen the advantage. And so when you have a deficient offensive line like the Patriots do, you should implement more play action, not less. Yeah, it's crazy, too, that you mentioned the fact they implemented a system that may not be what's best for the quarterback, that they took 15th overall and they're building their whole organization around. It makes no sense. But therein lies the rub. Bill, Brian, you you think Bill Belichick wants to wants to devise a system and a roster around his quarterback? No, that's like, are you kidding me? That's a good point, like, yeah. That is not his ego, and he just doesn't look at the quarterback position like you and me and most sane people. He looks at it as, it's another position. It's, I can win with anybody. It's, you know, my system, it's a plug and play. It's like, it's, it's that's not today's NFL, Bill. You don't have a passing touchdown in the fourth quarter all <laughs> season long. Like, you, 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 you're like, you can't just think that, you know, quarterback play is not that important. And he treats it like it's any other position when we all know clearly it's not. Yeah, well, it's it's great, too, because you look at it like Tua, he has the highest RPO rate in the NFL because he was good at that at the collegiate level. They carry that over. And look, teams are picking up on it now, but he's had a lot of success this season. Look at all the creative stuff that Dayball did with Josh Allen to get his career oh. off the ground. It seems like the Patriots are not catering to max skill set. I do want to ask you about one guy in particular in the offense, and that's Kendrick Bourne, because... And maybe this is just me. I'm just committed to Kendrick Bourne because I thought he was going to have a big year. And if I'm you look you. at the numbers, the snaps are down from 52% to 42%. And it se- he had that drop the other day. It seems like they've just completely lost him. So if they aren't willing to play that guy, which I think they should because last year he's really good after the catch. So he can make some plays for you when he gets the ball in his hands. So if you weren't going to play him and if he's been in the doghouse all season long, then why wouldn't you just move him at the deadline? Because he actually had a pretty good contract. I, I don't understand like what their plan is for Bourne. I feel like we're talking about Mac a wasted year. Obviously, that's way in, more important, but it feels like they've just wasted Kendrick Bourne, who had good chemistry getting back to the quarterback thing with the quarterback. Yeah, that has been I think I think that was a misread on on Belichick's part. Like it, it I think it goes back into just to just to talk about the snap count for for um for Kendrick Bourne. I mean, Taekwon to put it in perspective, Taekwon Thornton. Um, the second round pick who, you know, you start to wonder, you know, if he's going to figure it out. He, he played 90% of the snaps in the game the other night, Brian. And, uh, and, and Kendrick Bourne played 11%. Like, are you kidding me? Kendrick, and I, like you, I thought Kendrick Bourne was going to be, he had career numbers last year. And I thought he was underutilized last year. Yeah. He was, he was poised to have a big breakout year. He was. And his energy and his, uh, his, his, his personality is such that I think guys gravitate to, and it's a positive one. And so you nurture that. You don't isolate that player. You don't put him in the doghouse. Okay, maybe he he said something that, you know, Bill can get offended really easy, you know, and he maybe he didn't like the Kinder Board, probably had some comments in the summer, Brian, where he, he talked about the new system. There's going to be some changes. You know, Bill doesn't like that. Um, but Kinder Board's just being honest. He's just kind of one of these guys that's, it, it, he's it, it's kind of endearing, you know, how naive he is. But uh, I think putting him in the doghouse and really keeping him there, man, I mean, he's kept him there. And if you remember Kendrick Bourne and Mac Jones at the beginning of the season had this little thing like where it was speculated that 
they were all both unhappy with the de- offensive coordinator. And whenever Kendrick got in there, Mac went to him right away, right? And so he started forcing the ball to Kendrick Bourne. And, and Patriot coaches, Bill doesn't like that. You know, hey, you want to show me up? Okay, watch this. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be buried on the bench. So something, the reason Kendrick Bourne is not playing at the end of the day is not for football reasons. It's for something else, and we won't know whatever what it is. But Bill has, for years, cut off his nose to spite his face, and he's done stuff like this with players before. But you never heard about it because Tom Brady was here, and you were winning. And these types of stories don't reach the surface. When you're losing, and when it feels like guys are really ready to let go of the rope, you start focusing in on these kind of things, and you start asking, well, why isn't he playing? What is going on? And Bill's been doing it his whole career, but when you have Tom covering up all this, these warts, um, it, it, uh, you can fly under the radar uh, for a while. But Bill's still kind of coaching uh, at, at times with that iron fist, and it just doesn't fit today's athlete. Yeah, I'm with you, too, on the energy thing with Bourne. Like, it felt like every catch he had last year was a big catch, and he'd always yeah. get up, and he'd be the team would sort of gravitate around him, to your point. And you mentioned Brady. So speaking of Brady, Bill Barnwell tweeted out that the Patriots should consider going after Tom and check in on Jimmy Garoppolo's camp. Trent Brown actually liked that Instagram post. Now, I know when you were playing, they didn't have Instagram in the early 2000s. I mean, it's fairly new, right? But is this a big problem in the locker room that Trent Brown liked this post? It it could be. It could be because it is interesting because I'm, I I don't know. I don't, I I thought Trent Brown was, it feels like a pro kind of uh, bill, uh, you know, action right there uh, you know anti-mac pro bill <laughs> yeah and I, feel like, and I feel like trip brown has just kind of been on an island like f you f you and he's kind of <laughs> had this attitude all season long i feel like where he's like i don't know he just feels disengaged all season long and like at times i question his his i'll be honest his effort you know his his, his desire and his effort and i think a lot of it is probably i'm questioning it because I just don't think he's he's really a fan of the coaches and, and the decision that they had to move him to left tackle and and that whole thing. But to your bigger point, that it's interesting how that might play out in the locker room because I think the majority of this team loves Mac Jones, and and I think they love him unconditionally. I think the the team looks at his struggles as more of the coaching staff than on him, and so. Um, Trent Brown, that's the first kind of player that is signaled to anybody that, you know, maybe they're not in support of Mac Jones when everybody that feel like up to this point is really backed Mac Jones and doubled down on their support for Mac Jones when it started to feel like a couple of weeks ago, this players versus coaches dynamic starting to form. Yeah. So you think Mac basically has the locker room. So based on what he was doing like last week and He's been like, I understand he's frustrated. He's been doing it for a couple of weeks. So do you think he's got to like lay back on that a little bit? Is he getting over the top with the like the complaining on the field? Not like behind closed doors, whatever's going on there, the frustration, but the stuff that he's actually doing on the field. Is that something he's got to dial back? You know what? I think if they want to win football games, if they're trying to get Matt Patricia fired, then keep doing it. Right. <laughs> it, it's like, what's your if, if Matt? I don't know what the ultimate goal is. Is it to win football games or is it to get? you know, bring attention to Matt Patricia is a lousy offensive coordinator and to get him fired. Like, because that's, I think Mac Jones is behaving the way he's been behaving on the field, bringing attention to his dissatisfaction with, you know, with Matt Patricia, partly 
at the support and encouragement of his teammates. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't complain and you don't show outward frustration, if you don't let out through various channels, backdoor channels, your frustration or what's really going on, then there's then nobody knows. Then there's no pressure applied publicly to the organization to do anything about it. And so players smartly know how to use the media, know what to say, to throw little crumbs out there for all of us to pick up and take off with it and to hope maybe perpetuate change. And so I'll be honest, sometimes you wonder whether or not these guys really uh, are, are want to win football games or if they just really want, you know, everybody to know how bad the coaching is. And so they uh, don't get stuck with this guy next year. All right, Ted. And before I let you go, I got to ask you the big question. So I mentioned Tom Brady. Obviously, he's a free agent at the end of the season. Now, I don't understand why Tom would want to come here, right? Based on the weapons, based on the line issues. It doesn't make sense to me from Tom's perspective. But do you think the Patriots will try to go after him? No way. No way. They are, you know, the Patriots, like, boy, you know what? Pride, ego. It's, there's no way. We didn't, they, we didn't want you, Tom. We're good. We, we, they didn't want Tom. Bill didn't want Tom. Okay. Kraft, I think, would have been happy with Tom forever. But uh, Bill didn't want Tom. No matter how you spin it, that's how it went down. And then Bill wants him now, three years later, he can't win without him. So now he's got to come back and make it right. No way in hell that happens. And it's, it's driving me crazy. It's, it's one of those storylines that's driving me crazy because <laughs> it'll never happen. And it's insulting to Tom to think that he's going to come back here um, after what the Patriots, you know, kind of did to him as far as just really giving up. Bill Belichick gave up on Tom Brady. That is the story. And why would Tom come back? Um, and I'm, I don't think the Patriots would be hat in hand. At least Bill would never want to sign off on, on, on that. That would be all RKK right there, Brian. Yeah, I think Josh should call him, man. I think Derek Carr sucks. I mean, I was very unimpressed with him in the game. He has not had a great season. If I was McDaniels, I would call up Brady. Look at all the weapons he's got. He'd have Devontae Adams, Darren Waller, Renfro. That seems like the perfect team for Tom. I don't know where else. I mean, honestly, the 49ers, if Jimmy's goes, no, he's not going to the 49ers. I just, I, I don't, I can't imagine because Shanahan is got an ego and he's like, and Tom's got his offense. It'd be like just the same dynamic that happened down there when Tom was down there. With the old coach, you know, and, 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 and Bruce Arians offense and Tom Brady's offense, they're not the same offense. And so there was really this kind of butting of the heads initially. Well, whose offense ultimately won out at the end of the day? It was Tom's. Tom's offense and Bruce Arians offense went bye bye. Well, then they went and won a Super Bowl. The point is Tom Brady has a whole style in which he's he's best suited to uh, run an offense. And it's completely different than a Shanahan offense. So it, it would be like Shanahan saying. I'm, a, I'm an offensive genius and mastermind. My dad's an offensive genius and mastermind. Here comes Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback ever, and I'm just going to sit back and let him do his thing. That will never happen. So it's pie in the sky that he'll go back to San Fran. And that performance he had against San Francisco in the Bay Area two weeks ago, I, I just can't see Shanahan thinking, you know, Tom's a good uh, – would be a good guy to bring in. But the Raiders, I like that. I like the Raiders. Uh, I'm going to the Raiders uh, probably more than any other team. Yeah, it would make sense. And I hope he plays again next year because I don't want to see too. Tom go out this way. Eight losses, the most he's ever had in his career, Ted. It's fascinating to see this. I hope he finds a new team next year. That is three-time Super Bowl champ Ted Johnson. You see him now on NBC Sports Boston. Ted, maybe the Pats will get one of these final three if like, the Bills decide, hey, we, our seed's locked up and we don't have to play anybody. <laughs> I think that's the only way they win one of these final three. You might be right, bud. It, I don't think I think it's going to be a ugly, ugly uh, kind of 
uh, very, very uh, fascinating offseason for sure. All right, Ted Johnson, thanks so much, man. We really appreciate it. All right, Brian, you bet, bud. Take care. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Ted Johnson, as always. Love talking with Ted. Yeah, I'm really thinking that Brady to the Raiders makes a lot of sense. I don't know about you, but that other day, I mean, Derek Carr, that guy is not good. And if you're Josh McDaniels, this is basically your last chance to be a head coach of the NFL. Who you rather have, Brady or Derek Carr? Worry about, like, the latter portion of your contract when you get there. Get a better quarterback in next year. All right, I did want to get to some Red Sox stuff because... An interesting article this week from June Lee of ESPN, and it's about Bloom and the Red Sox and everything that has sort of transpired over the past couple of months, really past two years or so. So this is directly from his article. According to multiple sources, Boston's ownership group did not mandate that Bloom trade bets to get under the luxury tax, but that is what Bloom ultimately decided to do with an eye towards increasing the Red Sox options in the future. Okay, so this thing has so many layers to it. It is incredibly juicy, right? So this is ownership separating itself from Bloom. They know what the temperature is right now. How could they not? They just lost Xander Bogarts after losing Mookie Betts after 2019, and you just finished in last place. So they know that the fan base is incredibly angry right now. That's why Sam Kennedy is out there doing all these interviews. And this is what we have seen from this ownership group before, right? Hey, it looks bad right now. Let's point the finger at somebody inside the organization that isn't us. And look, this could be true. I believe anything you would tell me about Bloom. This guy is completely incompetent. He's the most incompetent general manager slash executive I've seen in this town since Rick Pitino. Okay, so I could totally believe that Bloom wanted to make this decision. But this is the ownership group where everybody believed, hey, they didn't want to pay Mookie Betts. They're saying, hey, actually, we would have. Bloom made this decision, right? And the Sox did the same thing to Dave Dombrowski in 2019. Not that Dave did the same thing that Heim did, but where else would you see an organization Fire a guy that led you to three consecutive division titles and won a World Series. And then you fire that guy, right? But it happened. If you think about it, what happened is they blamed Dave for extending Evaldi. And remember, Evaldi in 19 barely pitched because he was dealing with those injuries. 67 and two thirds. They tried him in the bullpen. It never really worked out. He had those loose bodies at his elbow, whatever the hell was going on there. So he needed a procedure. Chris Sale sucked after they gave him the extension. And remember, Chris Sale had an ERA that was north of 4, 440 that particular season. And then all of a sudden, towards the end of the year, Dave gets neutered, can't make moves at the deadline. They only went after Kashner, and then they say, hey, Dombrowski's gone. So they basically put this on Dombrowski because the contracts start to look bad. But remember, ownership (laughs) signed off on the Chris Sale contract. In fact, they encouraged it because this ownership group fucked up the John Lester negotiations years prior. Remember, John Henry, direct quote from John Henry. I think we blew the John Lester negotiations. We blew resigning him in spring training. Then he says, I think Chris falls out of the norm because he's such a great, not just a great pitcher, but a great part of the team, as we saw in the World Series. He had quite an impact just being on the bench in the World Series. He's a special player. And by the way, in the World Series, he pitched five innings and a third because 
And remember, he closed out the World Series. That game, he was actually supposed to be the starting pitcher. But the point being is, they looked at Chris Allen, the negative feedback they got from the John Lester situation, and they said, hey, we got to keep Chris Sale. Because Chris Sale, to his credit, he was a fan favorite. I thought that the contract, this isn't me second-guessing the Chris Sale contract. Everybody first guessed it. The guy was dealing with all these injuries. He still had another year in 19 in terms of he was under contract with the Red Sox. Make him prove he was healthy because in 18, he broke down. In 17, when he was here, when he had the 300 strikeout season, he was not good in the postseason, struggled on the stretch. And you could say, hey, maybe they overworked him. And there's certainly some truth to that with the John Farrell situation. Keep trotting him out there towards the end of the season like he could have been tired. But the point being, the guy was starting to break down. Even his final year in Chicago, go look at his numbers in 16. His final year there, he was bad down the stretch. But instead, you signed him. So it was a mistake from the Red Sox, right? And... Now you look at it, what they're doing is the same thing they did to Dave. Hey, it's it's not our fault. It's Heim Bloom's fault, right? They're putting all the blame on Heim Bloom. It, just like they did with Dave Dombrowski when they basically compared the Chris Sale contract negotiation to John Lester. This is what they are doing with Heim now. Hey, we never said he needed to trade Mookie. We never said that. But hey, you guys signed off on it. That's what I'd say. Any decision like that where you're talking about, remember, Mookie Betts, the 2018 MVP. Okay, that goes to the best player in the American League. You could argue he was the best player in baseball that year. He hit 346. You don't think that ownership has to sign off on a decision like that? And secondarily, you don't think this is something that they discussed when they interviewed Heim Bloom for the job? Hey, uh, I don't want to pay this guy $300 million. Okay, Heim, you got the job. Like to act like it was Heim's decision is just unbelievable that they're putting this out there through June Lee. That is just not the truth. The ownership didn't know. It's just saying, hey, Haim can make this decision. The guy that you just brought in, that, that's what the ownership did. I mean, come on. The other part of the quote that gets me is this. In terms of why Bloom decided to trade Mookie, this is what is from the article, with an eye toward increasing the Red Sox options in the future. Okay, so that was part of the calculus, according to June Lee's article, why Haim traded Mookie, with an eye toward increasing the Red Sox options in the future. What the fuck does that mean? Did they re-sign Xander? No, they offered him one extra year. That's it. Did they re-sign Schwarber? No, they were $30 million off on the Schwarber deal. Did they land Abreu? No, their top target this offseason. Did they land a big-time starter like Rondon or Verland or even a guy like Bassett, who's going to be the third guy in the Blue Jays rotation? No. Have they re-signed Rafael Devers? No. So all these options that are supposed to become available, the flexibility you're going to have after you traded away Mookie, where the hell's that? Kike Hernandez and Trevor Story, those are the guys you created room for. And I like Kike as a player, and I don't hate Story or anything along those lines. It's just, is that what we're talking about? The flexibility of bringing Kike on a two-year deal, and he got extended recently, and Trevor Story, six for 140. That's why you created this room, to sign guys like that? That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Those are the two biggest deals that he's given out for position players, Story and Kike. So this whole idea of flexibility, well, you had it, and what did you do with it? Jack shit. Well, he signed Yoshida. He settled for Turner over Abreu because they were off on Abreu by 15 to $20 million. And Mookie's gone and Xander Bogarts are gone. So this is what is just frustrating to me about this whole idea of flexibility long term. You didn't get any flexibility because you didn't sign anybody. Even if you think you had flexibility, which you actually did, you didn't land anybody with it. So what was the point of creating the flexibility and trading away the 2018 MVP, if you weren't going to use any of that flexibility to bring in stars, it just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And like this whole thing, I'm not defending Haim on the Mookie trade. I'm just saying that ownership putting this out there is incredibly disingenuous because you know they were involved in the decision-making process there. Okay, another part of this article I wanted to get to. 
According to multiple sources, the Red Sox endeavors are galaxies apart in their contract negotiations. The current expectation from Devers and his camp is that the third baseman will be a free agent at the end of 2023, given the current status of contract talks. Okay, so that's a bomb. So remember, Bloom said earlier this month, we'll probably, I think, go beyond reason to try to get this done. Hopefully we can get this done. There are always going to be limitations. Like people can just put something and reach out on themselves. And I hope if he hits 63 home runs, he does that, meaning bet on himself. Sorry. So think about that. He's saying that, hey, we're going to go beyond reason to try to get this deal done. Okay, so this is where he kind of loses me with the Raphael Devers situation. So what they tried to do was give him the Austin Riley deal last year. And remember, Austin Riley got 10 for $212 million. Here's the problem. Austin Riley still had three years left of arbitration on his contract. Riley's an elite player. I mean, there's no dismissing. This guy's a great player, but he had three years of arbitration left. Rafael Devers is scheduled to be a free agent after next season. So Riley was scheduled to be a free agent when he was 29. Rafi's scheduled to be a free agent when he's 27. And remember, Riley's a great player, but he didn't really debut until 2019. Rafi made his debut in 2017. So at the time where they offered Rafael Devers this deal that Riley got, Riley had had one good season in Major League Baseball. Devers had been playing since 2017. And here is the more frustrating part about this. So. The Braves went to their player and they expressed a willingness to extend after one really good major league season. That's what the Braves did. He hit 202 or 302 rather with 33 bombs in 2021. Okay. The shortened season, he was at 239 and 19. He only played 80 games, 226. So really he had one really good season in 2021 where it looked like, okay, this guy's a star, 33 home runs, 302 average. So what the Braves expressed was a belief in themselves that, yeah, we got it right with this kid. The Red Sox didn't do that. So that $212 million deal, if you were Bloom and you offered this to Rafi when you took the job after 19, it's very similar. He hit 311, a 916 OPS. He had 32 bombs and he had the most doubles with 54. So that's the year that you offer Rafael Devers that contract, just like that was the year that Riley got the deal was after his first really good major league season. Devers did that in 2019. The Red Sox didn't offer him anything. So you had a chance to get a very similar deal done to what Atlanta did with Austin Riley, but you missed that. So this whole idea of comparing Rafael Devers to Austin Riley when they did, it made zero sense. What you really need to do is put the Manny Machado deal in front of Rafi, 10 years, $300 million, and see if he takes it. And if not, you got to up your price, right? Because he's going to enter free agency at 27. When Machado signed that deal with San Diego, he was 26 years old. This is what you're talking about now because you created this trouble for yourself. And here's the other thing that Rafael is working for him. Rafael Devers now has all the leverage in the situation because not only is he just one year away from free agency, he's also playing for the organization that traded away Mookie Betts and Xander Bogarts went to the San Diego Padres. So Heim Bloom has no leverage whatsoever. So if you want to get a deal done, you have to come to Rafael Devers' table, not the other way around. And can you imagine if this guy somehow, and I actually can, I don't even know why I'm saying, can you imagine this? Heim Bloom could lose Bogarts, Mookie, and Devers. I mean, that is fascinating to think about. And would anybody be shocked if he did based on the guy's resume as the head baseball chief operating officer, whatever it is, his title as the Boston Red Sox. I mean, really, this guy is incredibly incompetent. And I don't know how the ownership group is stuck with him this long because this offseason has been an absolute joke. 
All right, coming up next, I do want to get to some Bruins because they continue to roll. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, welcome back into Off the Pike. So the Bruins, after that 7-3 win over the Panthers on Monday night, they now have a plus 54 goal differential, okay, which is fascinating to think about because the Devils are second at plus 30. If you look at the Capitals and the Kraken, they're tied for 15th at plus 7. So basically the gap between the Bs and the second best team in the NHL is about the same as the second best team and the 15th best team in the NHL. That's how much of a gap the Bruins have created for themselves. So I want to get to a bigger picture thing with this team in a second here. But first, just that game Monday night, it really showed you how deep this team is, right? So the Panthers early in that first period were taking it to the Bruins. And remember, you had the early review after Lindholm went into Allmark on the Colin White shot less than 30 seconds into the game. So you felt like, all right, the Panthers are bringing it to the Bruins early. And they were the better team for the first half of the first period. And then Connor Clifton scores, right, who had a couple of really nice shifts early on in that game. He gets his own rebound. He puts it back in. I mean, just a really energetic play by Connor Clifton. I know after the game that Jim Montgomery and Connor Clifton said they don't like the name Cliffy Hockey anymore, whatever. I mean, not a big deal. But anyway, just getting back to my original point, this is a guy that is what? Your sixth best defenseman if you're the Bruins, right? And he's the one that picks up the team early in this one when they needed a jolt of energy. And sometimes you're going to need that because the Panthers had more jump to begin that game. and. Just getting that type of production from your sixth best defenseman is remarkable to see. And he sort of energized the entire team last night, right? And that's what separates this Bruins team from most other teams at the NHL. The other thing that stuck out to me was Hampus Lindholm. He was much more active in the rush than he has been lately. Early on in the season, he was. But December hasn't been the same guy that we saw in October and November. Not to say that you're concerned about him. But if you look at it, October, seven points in nine games. November, 11 points in 13 games. Then December, prior to last night, three points in eight games. And last night, he comes alive. That Krejci goal that was created by Lindholm, who gets the deflection off the post, and then Krejci puts back the rebound. So getting that version of Lindholm back is so critical to this team because, to Montgomery's credit, he's really weaponized Lindholm offensively. And now you look at it, he takes over the plus-minus lead. He was at plus four last night, so now he's at plus 24 on the season. The other thing I'd mention is just Olmark in this game. I thought he let up a soft one in the second period. But then he made two huge saves with the game at 5-3. And the Panthers, by the way, had a 4-3 advantage. First, he stopped Cousins. Then the ridiculous glove save on Forsling when he was down on the ice. Remarkable save by Olmark. And on the other side, you have Spencer Knight, who was leaky for the Panthers in that game. So it certainly helped to have this guy in your net and Olmark step up when the other guy was just absolutely atrocious in Spencer Knight. I mean, that second Bergeron goal was really soft. So... Even when he wasn't sharp in that second period, huge saves in the third period. And if you look at Olmark, he's been great. And this has been a major part of the reason that you're first in goals against and you're first in save percentage in terms of just the play of Olmark. But in general, you look at it, he's first in save percentage. But the process is really good for the Bruins in terms of the defense still, right? So the Bruins are third in high danger chances against, and they're number two in expected goals against. So with the improvement of this offense, the Bees are still... As we mentioned, they're second in goals per game, but the improvement of the offense, the defense, and the integrity on that side of the ice hasn't changed whatsoever. 
So even with this increase in scoring from the Bruins and all the defensemen getting involved in the Rushmore, they're still a really good defensive team. So it's not just that the goalies are playing well. The defense in and of itself, if you just look at some of the advanced numbers that I gave you there, it's still really good. So here's my question in terms of big picture watching this team. We're sort of over the initial notion of, holy shit, this team is way better than we thought it was going to be. We know they're a wagon right now. We gave you the goal differential. We gave you the goals against. Two more power play goals last night. They're third in the power play. They're first on the penalty kill. So they've established themselves as the elite team of the NHL this year. And now we're 31 games in. And I've said on multiple occasions that the Marchands, the Bergerons, the Krejci's of the world, they'd go to another level in terms of getting that second cup. And the organization does as well, right? Where tinkering the core over the years to fit to Bergeron, et cetera, to be able to get back there and win another cup, it'd be huge for them. So I just hope from the perspective of the fan base that we don't get bored of what's going on right now. Because let me worry about the playoffs when you get closer to the playoffs. We should be so excited for the regular season we're seeing right now, right? Enjoy the ride. Bergeron's 37. Krejci's 36. And you didn't have them last year. And look, even if this core stays together next season, and for the majority of it, they will, but they're not going to have a season like this. Nobody has seasons like this. Right now, the Bruins are 25-4-2. Think about that. So here's a little metric man breakdown of what the Bruins have done. They haven't lost in regulation at home. They're 17-0-2. So that isn't normal. The Panthers, by the way, last year, they won the President's Cup trophy with 94 points. The Bruins right now are on pace for 137 points. The 76-77 Canadians, all-time leaders with 132. The Bruins are on pace for 137. I'm not saying they're going to get there, but that's what they're on pace to do right now. You haven't had a team over 100 points since Tampa did it in 18-19. The Bruins are also on pace for 66 wins. The record is 62 by the Red Wings back in 95-96. So enjoy this season right now. Enjoy what the Bruins are doing. Get over to the Garden for a couple of games and then worry about the playoffs when you get closer to that point, right? So I just don't want to miss out. I don't want people to miss out on what the Bruins are doing and say, hey, yeah, but they got to get the cup, blah, blah, blah. Well, enjoy the season, okay? All right, I do want to get to one Celtics note because obviously they're in a bit of a struggle here and their best players struggling. I know he didn't play, of course, last Sunday, but if you look at it, Tatum's down to 26.5 points per game in the month of December, which is good for most humans, but not for Tatum based on the season he was having. In November, he was at 31.9 points per game. So his field goal percentage has dropped, his three-point percentage has dropped as well. Here's the thing that jumps out to me. In that month of November where Tatum was the best player in the NBA, He was at 9.3 free throw attempts per game, and he was scoring 8.1 points per game at the free throw line. You look at that number in the month of December, seven free throws per game, which is still pretty good, but 5.8 in terms of the points per game at the free throw line. Then you look at the restricted area. His finishing has fell in the month of December. He's finishing in the restricted area just 61.2%. Well, in the month of November, that number is at 72.9%. So that's a big, massive drop-off. So if you look at it, Of the 23 players in the month of December that are attempting at least six shots per game in the restricted area, Tatum's 61.2% is 16th of those 23. And he was finishing at an elite level, that number we told you, 72.9% in the month of November. So maybe some of it is fatigue. Maybe some of it is he's tired. But he's got to get back to the guy because the three-point numbers are down. They weren't great in November either. He's at 33.3% from deep in December, that number was only at 35.3% in November. So it wasn't great either. So Tatum, in terms of the restricted area and the free throw line, this is why this is so important to him. So Tatum's averaging 7.6 points per game in the restricted area, 5.8 points per game at the line in the month of December. So that's 13.4 points. 
look at that number in November. 8.2 points per game in the restricted area, 8.1 points per game at the free throw line. So that's 16.3 of his points at the rim or at the free throw line out of that 31.9. So even with the three-point numbers going down for Tatum, if Tatum was in a situation where he was still doing the same thing he was doing at the free throw line and finishing at the rim the way he was, he'd still be at about 29 points for the month. So the big thing for me with Tatum, and I kind of reference this with some of the, the numbers with the team in general, if you just look at the Celtics, the attempts in the restricted area, first 24 games of the season, they were 24 per game, which isn't great, 25th, but now they're all the way down to 19.1 in their last seven games. That's 29th. So they're not getting to the rim, and they weren't early this season, but it's getting worse now. You just look at that floater area, right? So in between the mid-range and the restricted area, the Celtics, the first 24 games, just 13.6 attempts, 27th in the NBA. That's all the way up to fourth now in the last seven at 20.3. So it's about getting to the free throw line more, and it's about getting to the basket more, and it all starts with your best player in Jason Tatum. And hopefully they wake up this week because they got an Indiana team that's played pretty frisky this season. And of course, what we're all looking forward to is the game on Christmas Day against the Milwaukee Bucks. That's what I'm looking forward to because the Bucks have really started to turn it on now. All right. Oh, by the way, I do want to remind you of this. So Christmas Eve, we're going to be on on Saturday after the Patriots Bengals game. So we will have a full off the pike episode after the Pats and Bengals coming up on Saturday. So instead of our normal Sunday podcast on Christmas, we're going to do it on Christmas Eve because, of course, the Patriots play on Christmas Eve and not Christmas Day. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.